creeds and criticism meet. Reference podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we have a much loved and appreciated guest with us, Dr. Ron Pierce from Biola University. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming. He was both of our professors at Biola. And just a few of his quick accomplishments. He taught at Biola since 1976. He is the uh, one of the main authors and contributors, or editors, and editors. I, editors, I should say, of Discovering Biblical Equality, which I'm told has a uh, upcoming third edition. Uh, he's worked on a intensive commentary on Daniel. He's contributed to Priscilla Papers and Jets, and also the recent Vindicating the Vixens with uh, Sandra Glon. He did the chapter on Deborah. So he's written a thing or two. Yeah, and um, I think DBE, it's is it the it's the second edition that's coming out, correct? Yeah, is it the second or this third? It's third. Oh, third. I didn't know that. Nice. Yeah. Um, And this is probably one of the top books for making an egalitarian case from scripture, I would say, easily. Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, we're just delighted to have Dr. Ron Pierce on with us today. And it's just, it's been a long time coming. It's, it's, we're excited. Yeah. And how long have you taught the gender class at Biola? What's the what's the story behind that coming together? Because you've been doing that yeah. for a very long time. <laughs> Actually, when I started in '76, I was assigned to do a class called Church and Last Things, and in the church context of that, we studied women in ministry. And so I was complementarian at that time. I taught the gender class from about 1982 on then. Um, and about 10 years into that, I, yeah, not even 10 years, I changed my mind and um, wrote my coming out paper as an egalitarian. Nice. Yeah, I would say, so, yeah, that's for, for, probably the egalitarian class on campus. Yes. And actually, if any of you guys are interested, um, I would say this class has been formational to a lot of students. Um, you can find it, Biola University has put it up on YouTube. Um, you can find it by typing in Ron Pierce Biola University, and the course number is BBST 450. Yeah, I was I was watching it on our TV a few few weeks ago just to see. It's like I wonder what wonder what Ron Ron is up to and what the class is doing because we both took that class and uh, I came in. I think I recall. I don't recall being particularly active in the class, but I was kind of I I I, I absorbed things through osmosis and through just constant thinking about it. And so I came in as a, I think, a soft complementarian. I don't, I don't know. I assume like most Biola students at this point, at least by default. And by the end of the class, I was pretty convicted about egalitarianism. I wasn't a hundred percent, but that class, and especially the reading, kind of pushed me over the fence, so to speak. Yes, yes. Uh, well, and it, it was for me too. It was uh, just uh, teaching the class as a soft complementarian. I just continued to read the new literature to come out from Paul Jewett to Aida Spencer's book, Beyond the Curse, and Gretchen Gabelon Hall's book, uh, Equal to Serve, and the arguments just made a lot more sense. Hmm. Yeah, all right. Well, um, we've got Dr. Pierce on today to talk about feminine and masculine imagery 
used for God in the Old and New Testament. And so, broadly speaking, a lot of this kind of boils down to how certain people use certain language, but just kind of overall, what is what is kind of the debate going on right now as it relates to this sort of language? Because this language often in our culture is very front-loaded and all that sort of stuff. So, could you give us kind of a a bird's eye view of the language used in both just as kind of a way of setting the conversation. Yeah. And just kind of how it's understood on the popular and um, academic level. Sure. Sure. Well, the, the patriarchal culture of both the old and the new testaments assumed a generic masculine use as older English uh, assumed that same thing. Uh, And so the debate now comes as to uh, between whether to translate that in a sort of wooden literal sense, since it was masculine pronouns, use masculine pronouns all the time, or whether to translate that in a way that would be more uh, consistent with contemporary English, where the masculine pronoun is not necessarily generic. And so the, for example, the English Standard Version tends to be more wooden literal about translating masculine pronouns with English masculine pronouns every time, where the NIV uh, looks at the context and says, is Paul writing only to the men at Ephesus when he calls them brethren or brothers, or is he writing to the whole congregation? If so, so, we should maybe put in the English text, brothers and sisters. So I think that's where the translation debate settles. And then, of course, that doesn't touch on where we go with referring to God, whether we can embrace the feminine metaphors of God uh, or just kind of, I don't know, we tend to ignore them. We, we don't really tend to treat them differently than that. Has that always been the case, that the feminine metaphors for God were ignored? They, they were, aren't completely ignored, but close to it. And yeah, it's been a long tradition in the church to read them in more masculine terms. Uh, I mean, throughout church history in particular. Uh, so when you see the womb of God being referenced in a metaphorical sense, it becomes referenced uh, in the commentaries as the womb of the father. Hmm. Um, and so somehow taking away the, the sort of sensual element of a womb, a mother's womb, uh, by attaching it to a father, where in in English, when we read that, there's no image that comes off the womb of the father, because it it doesn't make sense to us. Yeah, I know, too, like, I remember reading, like, images of even the father having, like, idea of having the, the father having breasts that are giving milk to his children. It was kind of interesting that they kind of put the two together. Yes. Yeah, it really is because scripture doesn't uh, generally put them together. It's a mm. uh, matter of fact, in the old Testament, God as father is not nearly as common as we tend to think it is, especially when we hear contemporary prayers uh, using the language of father, God, Father God, do this. Father God, do that. It's not used as frequently. And when mother images are used or feminine images, uh, they are simply used in and of their own rights. Either the name for God, Yahweh, or just the generic Elohim, the word for God, is used when, when usually the divine name, Yahweh, when God nurses or God carries in the womb or God gives birth 
uh, it's it's the Lord does this, the Lord does that. Yeah. And overall, I, I've noticed that a lot of these sorts of, I mean, you have Paul using certain images of uh, in Galatians and, and elsewhere about how he kind of birthed um, you know the church and nursed them and stuff like that. Uh, and I don't think he's getting that from nowhere. I assume he's getting that from his scriptures. And so when we think about, you know, kind of this, this imagery, a lot of, at least the people I've seen to talk to kind of go, yeah, that was, that was Old Testament, kind of a, a dismissive wave of the hand kind of thing. But the New Testament reveals this. And I'm like, well, if Paul's using this sort of language, then he has to have some sort of analogy or, 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 or history in mind when he talks about this. So I don't know what you think about that, but how how they use metaphors for God seem to be very contingent upon their history, and and that's something that they they need as uh, in terms of their scriptures and their backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. Both Paul and Jesus uh, use feminine metaphors of themselves and birthing metaphors, um, and, and so they're carrying it forward from from the uh, strong emphasis on these metaphors in the in the Old Testament. And of course, I'm an Old Testament prof, and so I'm much less inclined to say, oh, that's just the <laughs> Old Testament, um, and dismiss it as that, because the New Testament writers don't do that. That was their Bible. Uh, and then, of course, we have metaphors of the Holy Spirit uh, giving birth and, and being born again by the Spirit. Uh, and so, yeah, we don't just get God the Father, but we get Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit, and then it translates to what, what we call mothering ministers in, in, the, um, in the chapter we did on in, in discovering biblical equality on this. Yeah, I should probably mention here at the beginning that uh, uh, I had the privilege of co-authoring this chapter in, in the forthcoming edition of DBE. Uh, with uh, Aaron Heim, uh, a wonderful evangelical New Testament scholar who is at uh, Oxford in the Wycliffe College now as a tutor at Oxford. She was a professor at Denver Seminary before. Uh, she did all of her doctoral work basically focusing on the use of metaphors in Scripture with a special emphasis on the New Testament and then in, in the article, we, we titled the article Biblical Metaphors of God as Mother and Spiritual Formation. Hmm. And so I bring a spiritual formation background. I'm a, I'm a spiritual director on the side. Um, and uh, I also tend to dwell in the Old Testament a lot. So it was just a wonderful compliment when she agreed to uh, do this with me. And, and we're looking forward to the article uh, coming out in the, in the book, hopefully within about a year maybe a little bit more than that, it should be out on the shelves. Yeah, nice. And I think uh, in addition to bringing the Old Testament and putting uh, it in its proper place, um, a lot of people I know, if they're not dismissing the feminine images of God, um, you know, birthing images and so forth, they're kind of overplaying at least, and I'm talking in terms of popular level conversations. I don't see this as much in the literature, um, although I'm sure it's there. The idea of God as warrior or those sorts of kind of images or ideas being kind of overlord over all the other metaphoric extensions of God that the First Testament, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament has. Do you see, how, so how do we kind of incorporate this? Yeah, um, and just to add on to that, it's it's like they see the masculine 
um, names and metaphors as primary with feminine just kind of added on um, to supplement the masculine. Yeah, I think there are two issues there. Uh, First of all, there are places in the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah in particular, where the two are mixed in the same context. So uh, let me just give an example here in Isaiah 13. Um, When the day of Yahweh draws near, terror seizes the warriors and pain and anguish grips them so that they writhe like a woman in labor. And so the images of warrior and the images of childbirthing come together. And then, I mean, it occurs twice uh, again in Isaiah in in chapter 21. It picks up the same thing. Uh, The prophet himself cries out at this, my body is racked with pain and pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. And then maybe the most powerful one, Isaiah 42, Yahweh marches out like a warrior yet exclaims like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. Hmm. Um, and so Isaiah mixes the both of the metaphors together. Um, but I think the other thing is uh, with regard to the sort of diminishing of feminine metaphors and the emphasis on masculine, there is a legitimate argument to be made that they are disproportionate in the amount of space they're given in the Old Testament. Um, And I think that is because God is speaking into a patriarchal culture. He's speaking, especially when he's speaking of himself as the powerful, almighty God who keeps his promise, who gives uh, an inheritance to his people, Israel, that uh, in order to communicate through those metaphors, and, and by the way, I think the fatherhood of God is equally metaphorical as the motherhood of, motherhood of God is. Uh, I, I don't see God having gender. Um, but I, I think he uses fatherhood language because it communicates something uh, that is so much more um, protective and, uh, um, and worthy of admiration, um, it, whereas motherhood in the Old Testament communicated different images and when he comes to areas of love and compassion and caring and nurturing, then he chooses uh, feminine metaphors instead of masculine metaphors. So he's communicating, I think, two different things. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, we've kind of made it, we've made an ontology of gender and decided like um, that the Old and New Testament are communicating essentially a ontology of gender rather than these are metaphors, you know, with very, you know, particular communications they're trying to convey based off of already set assumptions in place that are cultural. Yes. Yeah. The, the ontological part with regard to gender, especially as it, as it connects with gender roles hmm. and the idea of gender essentialism, where souls become somehow gendered, I, I think has been a... Uh, It's been a serious mistake that's been made in the church and especially is being propagated by the uh, by the complementarian movement at this point. Okay, yeah. And then that makes sense kind of. Well, I mean, it's interesting then, I guess. And I guess this hasn't really been teased teased out by a lot of people. Um, The fact that, like Nick was saying, um, Paul and Jesus do claim feminine imagery for themselves in 
positive ways, and they also attribute masculine imagery to women in positive ways as well. So it's kind of curious on that front. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I think we have to keep in mind the use of metaphors. So when Jesus uh, attributes femininity to himself in the sense of being the mother hen that hovers over her chicks to gather them and to protect them, he's he's employing an image that the people would have understood. It, it makes sense because that's what mother hens do. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's not speaking to a question of whether Jesus is somehow transgender or, or whether he, yeah, or whether he's a, a non-binary. It's not speaking to those issues. It's a use of metaphor to communicate images to people or ideas to people that they can best understand from their own, not, not only their own language, but from their own culture. Okay, yeah. What are, so, you know, just for people that don't, um, maybe know about a lot of these, what these metaphors even are or where to find them. What would you say yeah. are the top, um, and again, I, I think a lot of people know about the masculine imagery in the Bible. Um, what are the top maybe three or five um, feminine images used for God in the Old Testament and then the um, yeah. New Testament? What are some that, with some like locations that people can kind of go and read up on? Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it's, Interesting that the uh, in the Old Testament it plays off of the, not just the feminine but of the motherhood language, just as it occasionally plays off of the fatherhood language. Yeah. So there are four distinct phases of human motherhood that are developed regarding God in the Old Testament. Uh, there's carrying the child in the womb. There's the birthing of the child. The passages we just referred to. In Isaiah 13, 21, 42. Um, but back in, in Isaiah 46, we have the carrying image. Um, and and it's, real, it's, it's imagery that has been uh, euphemized or softened or sanitized, you might say, uh, to sound a little nicer to a Western reader, an English reader in our case. So in Isaiah 46, for example, uh, translating it in a very wooden literal sense, uh, Yahweh is saying to Israel, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all you remnant of the people of Israel, you were the load from my belly, hmm. and I have kept you from the womb. So, so a very pregnant mother can understand that language uh, in its very graphic and, and sensitive way. Uh, where sometimes they'll just euphemize it into uh, sort of a feeling or, or an, a different image. But it's powerful. It's physical. It's intimate. It's real. And then in Jeremiah 31, similar language comes up with this carrying of the child. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my womb yearns for him. I have literally the love of the womb, hmm. or we could translate motherly womb love for Ephraim, declares Yahweh. Um, so the carrying of the child and then the birthing of the child. And then there's a famous passage in Isaiah 49, the nursing of the newborn infant. Uh, and it's in response to uh, Zion's lament. 
and the Lord or that that the prophet says, prophet Isaiah says, the Lord has forsaken me. He's speaking on behalf of Zion. Uh, and so then Yahweh responds with a question, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child of her womb? Even if a human mother may forget, God says, I will never forget mm. you. And so it, it, it's, again, that, that sensual language of the mother actually carrying the child, now giving birth to the child now feeding the child uh, the intimacy that that really only mothers can have the kind of bodily in, in intimacy uh, and then one of my favorite the fourth category in the old testament one of my favorite areas is the weaning of the child hmm. so being birthing nursing and weaning and hosea picks it up in a, in a beautiful uh, context here hosea chapter 11 for, and I was with them like one who takes an infant to her breast. And I bowed down to meet him, to meet Israel, Ephraim, in order to feed him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils against me. My womb is utterly inflamed within me. That, that very sensual, bodily, physical, intimate language uh, and then Psalm 131, I think, is my favorite of all. It's a Psalm of David, where David says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Mm. That there's a sense of repose and contentment before God. Uh, instead, he, David writes, I have calmed myself. I've quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, mm. like a weaned child. I am content. Uh, and so I think there's an invitation there to touch a little bit on spiritual formation uh, to any of us, uh, whatever stage of spiritual formation we may be, to this intimate, quiet, uh, safe place to, of rest in God's presence uh, that can reflect growth into a deeper soul-forming life. Uh, and then finally, one last one in, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 66. I will extend peace to her, to Israel, like a river, and the wealth of the nations like flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. I love the old language of that, <laughs> the, the joyful child just laughing as, as you bounce her on your knee. Uh, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Speaking of the great tragedy and the loss mm. of Jerusalem. So there again, Israel's invited to return to this personal and intimate aspect of her covenantal relationship with God, uh, which was there from the very conception of God's people. So, so the beautiful language of the Old Testament, then that is what gets carried over, I think, into the New Testament, is that image. Okay. What are some of the images that get, so what are some of the uses in the New Testament? Well, Jesus uses it in, in a very well-known passage uh, when he is uh, brooding like a mother hand, hen over Jerusalem. Uh, and so it's just before the Passion Week, just before the crucifixion. 
and he's lamenting. He's, he's like Jeremiah sitting up on the hill, looking down on Jerusalem before it was destroyed. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it kills the prophets. Matthew 23, I'm reading from. It's also in Luke 13. Um, kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Uh, and there again, it's often women feel kind of put at a distance from the God of the Old Testament because all they hear are these masculine father images. Where, where here, women can identify, especially women who are able to give child, uh, to have a, a child or give birth, or women who choose to, the desire to gather the child and the child pushing away that that sad feeling, which I guess is is part of the weaning process. Uh, and then he talks about carrying uh, uh, Israel and sheltering them, like in the Exodus event. Um, so his lament, I think, is the most powerful thing uh, in the ministry of Jesus. But the lament also comes with a judgment. Mm where he says, you, you wouldn't come, and therefore your house is going to be left to you desolate. And so he, he mixes those images of the tender womb love of a mother with the fierce warrior and even the righteous God now who brings judgment. Mm. Uh, and so they're all pulled together in one very emotional moment for our Lord uh, without any sense of one being more or less appropriate for him because he physically was a man. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's very powerful to me in, the, in that imagery. Um, and then it's similar when we come to the Holy Spirit uh, because it is Jesus introducing the coming of the Holy Spirit in that very well-known passage in John 3 with Nicodemus mm. who asked Jesus, uh, you know, What's going on here? How can I get to know God better? And Jesus gives him this lengthy discourse saying, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And there's actually a, a play on words there, maybe a, a question in, in, in an interpretive sense is to translate that being born again or being born from above. It's very similar terms uh, in, well, it's the same term in Greek, anathen. Um, and so evidently, I, I think it's correct to translate it being born from above. Nicodemus's reply, though, seems to appeal to the other meaning. He says, surely you cannot enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born. So he's reading it kind of as born again, or hearing it as kind of born again. Um, and Maybe it maybe it's a misunderstanding of the way Jesus was using the term, uh, which could have either meaning. It's hard to know. But, but what's clear is that something drastic and difficult, something that Nicodemus deems impossible from a human perspective, is what Jesus is is speaking of here in this feminine birthing metaphor of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's not a question whether the Holy Spirit is feminine or masculine. Uh, 
it's the language changes from Hebrew to Greek and in one it's actually the Holy Spirit's neuter and the other the Holy Spirit is feminine in the Old Testament but uh, but we shouldn't take that any I think any more yeah. overly gendered than we take the masculine or fatherhood language of God I think God clearly transcends gender but one last thing on the, on the John 3 passage that I have found fascinating is that uh, Nicodemus is is curious about how this can happen. It's more of a theological debate with him as the old rabbi, uh, speaking to the chief rabbi. Uh, but then in the same chapter, John takes the uh, transitions from that metaphor to a, a foreshadowing of the, uh, of the cross in which the birthing pain isn't evident in the Holy Spirit's mention, but more in the beginning of the Passion Week coming in. Excuse me, I'm, I flipped over to uh, back over to Matthew in John's Gospel in the sort of foreshadowing of cross language. And then, of course, when Jesus calls the disciples after that to take up their cross and follow him. So just in the language of Jesus, a lot of information regarding uh, the use of feminine metaphor in the New Testament. It's it's what Paul uh, Paul Smith, in his older book, but I think it's still a wonderful book, uh, he calls it uh, the verses that we never memorized mm. in Sunday school. Uh, his, his book is called, Is It Okay to Call God Mother? And then the subtitle, Considering the Feminine Face of God. Um, there, there is a uh, a central chapter in the book where he focuses just on those, all these texts that I've been talking about. It's an older book. I think it was 19, uh, 1993 originally. Uh, but it is, uh, I, th I think it's still one of the best. He, he's a Baptist minister, a Southern Baptist minister. I don't know if it's okay to mention denominations mm -hmm. on your podcast. Yeah, go for it. Um, <laughs> we do. I'm an American Baptist. We, we talk about our Southern Baptist friends all the time. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So for context, he's not coming from a particularly egalitarian context. Uh, but, uh, he is quite adamant about this. Uh, and it's just, uh, and, and I don't know, I, I probably would not say, yes, it's, we ought to be moving toward calling God mother more often along with calling God Father. I, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think it's, I, I have some strong complementarian friends who call it blasphemous. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think we have to recognize, whether we call God Mother or Father, I think we have to recognize that God is Spirit, uh, Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well there, uh, and not flesh. The Nicene Fathers are, were also very clear on this, of not ascribing gender to God, but rather keeping it uh, uh, in spiritual terminology only, and not any kind of sexual terminology. Yeah, and, and picking up on the the fatherhood language in the uh, <coughs> bless you in the uh, New Testament, I, I've noticed yeah. a lot of pushing on father and son language as it relates to the Trinity as being yes. kind of the catch-all for grounding, of course, as you know, gender roles in the Trinity. Um, yes. 
And as we think about just kind of father, God portrayed as father, uh, as it relates to Jesus, my first thought when I hear father language in the New Testament, especially as it relates to Jesus, is one, the father, at least in first or in a Old Testament context, was the giver of inheritance. And so all, you have all this sort of economic language in Ephesians um, where, you know, the, the father does this and all that sort of stuff. But it's not an ontic thing. It's more just this is how it was expressed. Um, do you see the use, how do you see the use of father and son language, particularly probably we'll say in John and Paul, um, as it relates to kind of contemporary gender roles and Trinitarian stuff? Because you, you know better than all of us here in this room that the Trinity, especially as it relates to father and son language, has kind of been a bit of a lightning rod for a conversation in the past, well, technically 40, 50 years, but more specifically in the past three years. Yes. Yes, and of course, you have to mention in that context that even uh, the very strong proponent of complementarianism, I sometimes think of him as the godfather of complementarianism, mm-hmm. uh, Grudem, has most recently changed his mind about the eternal subordination of the son in the father-son image um, okay. and has come out with, a, I think, a more biblical view on that, one that's more consistent with with orthodox theology throughout church history. Uh, but yeah, I think you've touched on it, Nick, exactly in, in the right way when you, when you say it was ideas of inheritance, um, which, which brings us back to the patriarchal context in which the Old and New Testaments are written. So what are you going to communicate when you say mother versus father? Uh, and their ideas, some would argue that there are these, some of these stereotypes we have uh, are, are there because they're hardwired within us. Uh, but the social sciences have shown us in the last uh, 50 years, 40, 50 years, especially most recently, uh, that the uh, traditional bell curves that we once thought were so uh, immovable have changed. And we've realized that there's not as much of the stereotypical appearance of masculine and feminine that is hardwired. That part of it is uh, because of nature, yes, but parts because of nurture. Uh, And so, I I mean, I grew up, I'm 74 this year, so I grew up in a very patriarchal culture in the 1950s. uh, And there were assumptions we made that we thought were just absolutely intuitive. Everybody just knew it. Um, And now those have changed significantly because we we realized that some of those were very culturally driven. Matter of fact, some of those were driven much more by a post-World War II culture hmm. that had gone back just 100 or 150 years earlier, we would have had different assumptions. And so, so now we're able to begin fettering those out a bit. Uh, and I would even add a third category to the nature and nurture, and that is the factor uh, that we live in a broken and sinful world. And as human beings, though we always have and continue to reflect the image of God, we bear that image sometimes in ways that have been a bit uh, diminished or distorted by our brokenness. So I I really think that the the patriarchal uh, experience of humanity finds its biblical roots in the uh, judgment on man and the woman. 
Adam and Eve when when Eve is told the man will dominate her, he will rule her, uh, which is the same language used of what God had called the two of them to do together mm. over creation. They were to rule over creation. And then we come to chapter three and the stronger of them, evidently the physically stronger of them, is going to rule the other one, which is not part of God's creation. Uh, but God he accommodates us. He, he speaks into the world, as as one old writer put it. He speaks in a language that the hearer or the reader can understand. So he uses metaphors we understand. So yes, inheritance, even in Galatians, where it speaks to us uh, about us all becoming children of God. Hmm. Um, the TNIV, I think it was, the today's New International Version. Uh, read there, we were adopted to sonship. And some criticized the translation because they said, oh, no, we're adopted as heirs, make it more inclusive language. And I remember Gordon Fee in a conversation once saying to me, heirs doesn't carry the weight of sonship. Sons had all the rights, uh, and, and heirs, it's implicit but not as clear. Mm. So I think the language has a purpose as our contemporary English language begin, uh, continues to morph and to change, as language always does, um, then a different translation might work better. It, it depends whether or not it can carry the same effect that the masculine language did in Greek at that time, whether it can carry the same effect as English terms do at this time yeah. in our particular cultural context. And so we don't want to just translate the word in a lexicographical sense or a dictionary sense. We want to translate the meaning that the word was used to to effect or communicate at that time and then try to get the very same meaning today. Mm -hmm. And sometimes using the same word, just translating it into the counterpart in a different language will give an entirely different meaning. And that's the last thing we want to do is to change the meaning of the text. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like um, some of the struggle here, it is a matter of hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. Um, it's kind of, you know, because this particular metaphor is used, I guess it's kind of like, in some ways, I think some people are reading in the context as the authoritative communicated message rather than what the particular point or points um, of the metaphor you know, actually are. And, you know, sometimes too, like, um, metaphorical points can be more broadly applicable. And so it, it seems almost like instead of taking the the message and seeing how it applies to where we are today, um, or kind of entering into that, that world, you know, with our own world, it's almost like we're instead going back to the original patriarchal context and saying, that's the that, that is what God is trying to reinforce to us. Yes, I think you're exactly right, Allison. I think it's exactly where, where the flaw comes, is that we're taking the context. Uh, let me use two examples that, that I think interesting, because one actually reverses. In, in the First Corinthians 11 text, where women are told to keep their heads covered and to wear longer hair than men, almost every complementarian I know, I can only think of one exception, Almost everyone I know would say that's just cultural. We have to figure out what the head covering meant at that time. 
and then ask how can we translate that. So in other words, if the head covering there meant a woman should just dress in a culturally sensitive way so that the look doesn't get in the way of uh, her praying and prophesying, preaching gospel, then, then we can easily find a dynamic equivalent for that here today. But, but if a woman were a head covering, praying or preaching the gospel, that would actually have the opposite effect today because it would be distracting mm. rather than in with the culture in which she's speaking. Uh, and so complementarians generally are, are willing to acknowledge that there. But then when they come to another passage, whether it's Ephesians uh, 5 or 1 Timothy 2, then that they want to read in the cultural baggage of the day. For instance, in Ephesians 5, where it says the wife should submit to the husband because he is her head. Uh, and they say there it is, a prescription for husbands to be the head. Mm. And that's the question of having authority. But there's no command for husbands to be the head or to have authority or to lead or to guide or something like that. It's simply a call of submission to a cultural reality that she is faced with, Greco-Roman patriarchal household codes. Uh, and then for the husband, it's actually more countercultural. of course. He's called to love is what sacrificially we know the second one is inclusive because wives should husband love their husband sacrificially but we we want to read in the bag baggage of a greco-roman patriarchy in the home uh, rather than just saying what does it mean to be content in whatever stage you are i'm thinking back to language now first corinthians 7 where paul says if you were if you were not circumcised when you came to faith, don't you don't need to be circumcised. If you were a slave, you don't need to get free. But of course, if you can get free, that's always better. But you don't need yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Because that's just irrelevant. So I, I think it's. I think we just need to avoid the cultural language. And then First Corinthians seven, we just bring forward the principle that whatever our lot in life was when we were called, we are free persons in mm. Christ. And it really doesn't matter if we have this position or that, if we're socially advantaged or disadvantaged, if we are in a marginalized group or not, we can be free persons in Christ. And of course, if you can get out of those difficult places, then that's a good thing. But if not, know that you're still complete in Christ. So yeah, I think that's the mistake we made. And I think that we make that with the motherhood, fatherhood language of God as well. Yeah. It's almost too that we don't realize sometimes we deny reality in that like you're if you're if you're born a slave you're more likely not going to be able to not be a slave anymore it's just one of those things and even people that are belonging to marginalized groups um it's not like you can just or if you've you know faced discrimination it's not like you can just wake up the next morning and have zero discrimination or marginalization um you know should right. you fight for those things yes i think so because you know there's you know, scriptures full of um, just, you know, I guess, encouraging our identity and, and God um, and our equality. But at the same time, you know, people are stuck. And I think the Bible is a lot more multifaceted. Um, it seems like some of the issue is kind of um, this understanding of metaphor that's kind of one to one, like this, like one equals one kind of thinking rather than kind of something more nuanced that requires kind of understanding 
maybe the scenario in a more multifaceted way that kind of you can enter into and come up with uh, perhaps like a variety of um, even applications um, that are very different than even the original context imagined, um, given um, a change in the person listening um, to the original instructions, but also um, a crazy societal shift. And it's almost like if you follow sometimes the letter, like the head coverings command, like you were saying, you come out with something that was unintended by the communication, by the the author. Right, right. Yeah, and so... Yeah, you come out... Go ahead. Opposite. So it comes out opposite, yeah. Yeah. So for the, the final question, this was something, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, you're involved in spiritual formation and all that sort of stuff. Um, so this, this is a question I think you and I have a, a special resonance with. Um, I just came up with it. So how do these images, the, all we've talked about, you know, the masculine and the feminine images for God, um, how does that impact our, our prayer life, our spiritual formation? And um, maybe a different way of saying it is how do we live and preach this? Because, I mean, as, as you know, if you can't preach what you believe or, or preach what you're learning, or what you're studying, it seems to me to be kind of a waste of time. It's all, all, all things if you're involved in the life of the church, and if you're a scholar and academic, should at least, how can this be broken down to a person, you know, her getting up and being able to preach it? If she can't preach it, what's the purpose of studying it and putting it out there? So for all of this, like, how do these images impact our prayer life, our spiritual formation? And at the end of the day, how do we preach and live this? What impact does that have? Well, Aaron and I, when we when we finished up the article, we concluded with a couple of thoughts that I think might speak directly to what you're asking, hmm. um, we, and that we put them in the form of questions. Hmm. So, so, how might a deeper understanding and realization of God's motherly love change the way we minister out of that quality of love? And that's touched me deeply. Aaron and I both reflected on our own mothers and how their love for us impacted our spiritual growth. Uh, she was an adopted child. Uh, I was uh, a child of uh, six from the same mother. Um, and she mentioned uh, the question of how we might approach the communion table in a new way when we hear the words of Jesus, this is my body that was given for you. We think of the sacrifice that a woman goes through of actually bearing and birthing and nursing and weaning children. Uh, and how she gives her body for the child? Or how could this awareness of a God who bends down to feed us, nourishing us by the Spirit, the God who's birthed us to new life, how can that deepen and enrich our care for others uh, in the way we in the way we give ourselves sacrificially? Uh, gentleness, especially from men in the congregation who, especially in the, the sort of masculinity culture, um, to develop a greater gentleness like that of a nursing mother, uh, even as like Paul did, as, as we travail and moan in our ministries or whether the person who is not preaching, the person in the congregation, how they travail and moan in ministry of others or for others. I, I think of our own ministry to our grandchildren. And then for me, it was issues of spiritual darkness. 
uh, how can I sense the gentle, loving mother, God, in my times of spiritual dryness or spiritual darkness? And I sense that differently. I had a much closer relationship with my mother than my father, as many people do. A lot of young women do. Uh, and in those cases, they, they have a harder time connecting with God. This can be a, this can be a link. Um, and I think it just, it just honors one last thing. I think it honors and dignifies a woman's experience as she seeks to relate to what has been presented often as a male God. Um, and it can draw the women more fully into our ministries, nurturers, providers, strong warriors that they are, all of that, not just nurturers. And then they labor, maybe with quotes around it, side <laughs> by side with their brothers for the sake of God's kingdom. So I think in a sense, it, it, it doesn't erase gender, but it puts it into its place to where we can develop what Jesus referred to as, as those who would worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. It, it has helped me uh, in my own spiritual formation to be able to do that better. All right. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for joining us. It's been great to hear you and um, interact again. It's been, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. So thank you for, for coming it, on here. It's, it's been, been a blast. Thank you. Uh, it has been my pleasure, my genuine pleasure. I love you both. Yeah, love you too, Doc. Thank you for joining us by listening to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. Nick and I are truly blessed by all of you for your questions, prayers, and ongoing interest in a biblical theological case for egalitarianism. Feel free to support us directly by contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com. And just so you know, in the near future, we do plan on continuing with various exegetical, historical, and theological egalitarian interpretations as well. Um, here's some of what we're going to do. We'll respond to some of the popular and academic-level complementarian speakers, thinkers, and books. We'll also go deeper into some of the key Greek word studies, such as that pesky word, authentale, in 1 Timothy 2.12, and perhaps some others. And we'll do more interviews with some of the most preeminent scholars, advocates, translators, and others. Again, thank you, everyone, um, especially those of you who write us, um, whether egalitarian or complementarian, and our patrons, of course. Um, you all make us better, and you really encourage us. Um, again, no gift is too small, and you can look us up at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you can look us up under the split frame of reference. And I look forward to hearing from you guys soon. Uh -huh.